and we have Helen in the studio today. Now, I'll let you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Thanks very much, Beth. So my name is Helen Ngo. I completed my PhD in philosophy at Stony Brook University, which is over in the United States, and have recently moved back to Melbourne, which is where I'm from. Right. And what was your PhD in? And could you give us a definition? I wrote my PhD on racism and bodily habit using the philosophical tradition of phenomenology. Uh, my dissertation was on the ha- uh, called The Habits of Racism, and it used the philosophical tools of a, a discipline called phenomenology to look at both the lived experience of racism and racialized embodiment. So if you like, the, the two sides of, of racism. So would you be able to give us a definition of what racism is? Okay, so that's it's both a very simple and complex question to ask, I think, with a very simple and complex answer. I think a very sort of straightforward um, definition of racism might be something like the idea that we as humans are divided into certain races and quote-unquote races, I, uh, I sort of use the term with parentheses each time, the idea that we're all divided into different races and that we have different traits along with that, and that certain races are superior to others or that certain races are inferior. So that's a fairly standard definition and that can be expressed in things such as we see that in sort of racial violence, race, racist hate, discrimination, etc. I think that's fairly widely accepted. Where I think it gets a little bit trickier, though, is we, we start to unpack that a little bit. What does it actually mean to say that certain races are more superior than other races? And I think, for example, one thing that we could say is that can entail something like, in the context of Western society, installing the white subject as the normalised subject of experience, of consciousness, of philosophical reflection. And from that, we get things such as the idea of white privilege, so the um, invisibility of whiteness, as opposed to the hypervisibility of other racialized peoples or bodies. I think that's where it starts to get, that's where the definitions start to get a lot more contested. But I think that we can sort of stretch the definition of racism that widely. What was it that inspired you to study racism? I suppose, on the one hand, it's a problem that I think is such an important and such a huge problem in society. Uh, For me personally, um, as a person of colour, it's obviously one that impacts both on my life, but also on the people around me. I think it's the questions of racial injustice are ones that we haven't really been able to work through very effectively yet. And when I was in the middle of my studies and came across phenomenology, it struck me as presenting an interesting way to look at questions of racism. So could you tell us about Merleau-Ponty's concept? Okay, so um, Merleau-Ponty was a French philosopher, sort of around the middle of last uh, last century. His major contribution was, well, I should first perhaps situate him, he's a phenomenologist in training. And what phenomenology is, is a, a discipline or a, a, a particular philosophical approach which is concerned with questions around the structure of conscious experience. And in in exploring those questions, it's a discipline very much grounded in the first person experience as as the starting point of philosophical reflection. Now, Merleau-Ponty slots into that tradition, but his major contribution is his uh, work on the theme of embodiment. Well, that's, that's one of his major contributions. 
And the idea there is that for him, the body or what he calls the lived body is a site of meaning and, a, and it's generative of meaning and signification. It's, if you like, in the context of the history of Western philosophy, it's a chal- somewhat of a challenge to the Cartesian sort of dualism of mind-body, where we sort of separate the, you know, the, the life of the mind and the life of the body is something that doesn't really sort of generate any philosophical thinking or philosophical reflection for us. Whereas for Merleau-Ponty, he's saying, well, look, the body is really the medium of our experience. It's the medium of our having a world. And there is actually something there important to, to, to look at. That's his that's a real sort of sketch of one aspect of his work, which I then use in my work on racism. So how did you draw on the resources of Merleau-Ponty? Okay, so there were, I found um, a couple of concepts of his that seemed useful for me in thinking about racism. I should probably preface it by saying that Merleau-Ponty himself doesn't apply these concepts in this way. So I'm taking a bit of creative license in what I'm doing here. But there is a tradition, especially over in the States at the moment, of people playing with certain ideas of his. So one of them in particular is this idea of habit. Now, for we might think of habits sort of in a very ordinary sense as something that is very repetitive, routinized, unconscious, unthinking, you know, the way that it might be a, a habit to, I don't know, like to bite your nails or like to tap a pen on the table or something like that. For Merleau-Ponty, though, his description of habit, um, I'm drawing on his early text, The Phenomenology of Perception, is um, much broader than that. It's not just these things that we do sort of repetitively, but it also speaks to something like bodily orientation or a habituation, if you like. So he gives the examples such as, you know, walking through a door and not having to sort of stop and think. We just walk through it very fluidly um, because we're habituated to spaces in a particular way. Now, this struck me as an interesting way to think about racism and how racism works on a deeper level. So not the more sort of obvious levels, not the more obvious sort of expressions of racist hate that we see, but on a deeper level, how how does racism get expressed in how people move through space, how people respond to other people? So, for example, the, the, the classic example of kind of clutching a handbag on the approach of a black man walking across the street, locking car doors, these really micro sort of gestural and very bodily responses that don't get articulated through conscious thought. You might not even realise you're doing it, but there's a certain way in which these kinds of gestures get embedded or taken up in your bodily movements and gesture. It seemed to me that that was an interesting way to look at, you know, how deeply racism can kind of, the racist practices can cut into into how we comport our bodies in the world. Uh, relatedly to that, I suppose the other side is the question of racialized perception. So the way that we perceive racialized bodies, racialized others as already... I suppose overdetermined is a word that get used gets used a lot. The idea that you know a veiled Muslim woman, a veiled Muslim woman presents you know as an oppressed woman or a woman who's not making choices for herself, like that comes in the moment of perception, and that's because we, there again it's habitual in the sense that we learn to inhabit a particular way of perceiving certain bodies that we don't when it comes to perceiving white bodies. They don't come sort of laden with these qualities. So that's one way that I drew on Merleau-Ponty and his work on habit. To flip it somewhat, though, I was also interested in how his account might help us to articulate what the experience of 
racialization was. And what I mean by that is the experience of being a racialized body, of being someone whose body is deemed to have race and who's someone whose body is sort of laden with those overdeterminations, if you like. So racism on the other on, on the other end, the sort of the experience of racialization. And there, you know, I, I take a bit more of a critical stance in a way that there are different ways to approach this. So Merleau-Ponty, for example, in thinking about the experience of the body and how for him it's not, the body is not an object for us, right? We we are our bodies. We, we're not separable from it. We live through our bodies. Now, that's a really interesting point when we're thinking about the experience of racism and racialization, because for a lot of people who experience themselves, their bodies, precisely as a problem for them, this doesn't resonate. So if, for example, your body is constantly being called out as, you know, whether people are constantly asking you, where are you really from? Or if people are moving away from you, people are responding to your your body as if it's violent, dangerous, or lazy, any of those things, then your body does actually become a problem for you. And in a certain sense, it is in front of you. So I think there are some really important tensions that we can bring out arising from some of the concepts that he works with. Yeah, especially I I saw a documentary on a fellow who was white and he mm-hmm. said, oh, you know, it, it, you know you're just overreacting or African-Americans. Right. Right, right. And then they said, well, how about we conduct a little experiment? Right. And they actually blackened his face and hands and had him <sighs> working in a bar. And he could not believe the reaction of people yep. walking in, the reaction to him. Yeah. And it really showed him how people treat other people when when they are a different colour and they're not white. Right, right. And it can be sort of a very bodily response like that. I think it's oftentimes quite maybe surprising to people who don't experience this, just the omnipotence of it, I guess, I, I suppose, where how it, it's everywhere and it really infuses in every kind of layer of being. It's not just, you know, not seeing representations of people, of racialized people in the media or in levels of politics and governance and uh, not just those levels, but even in these very, very sort of micro micro levels of sort of interpersonal reactions. And I think that charge that you, you, you mentioned there, the idea that, oh, you're just being really sensitive it speaks to that it speaks to moving through the world whereby your body is not constantly constantly called into question where these small gestures don't mean anything because they don't actually have a larger significance in your life but you know I I was looking back uh, at the I think Beyond Blue and a campaign ad campaign last year I wasn't in the country at that time but I was looking at the the ad where they I think they called it invisible discrimination and it was it showed a series of you know situations whereby there were indigenous Australians you know on a bus on in a shopping center job interviews and the very subtle ways that you know, people were not sitting next to them or a bit suspicious of them or doubted their credibility. These are very sort of mundane. They seem very mundane in the scheme of things, but the way in which they kind of knit together into the fabric of your experience, I think there's something very powerful about that. Mm, Yeah, there certainly is. I know when I was studying philosophy, we were studying one woman's reaction to this and she was an Mm African-American and she said that uh, she didn't really have any idea about racism until one day when she was sitting on a train and she she was really pleased. She'd actually, her mother had just bought her a new blue snowsuit 
mm-hmm. and she was feeling very smart yep. wearing her new um, clothes. Yep. And she sat down on a train next to a woman and the woman had such a horrified look on her face when right. she looked down at her right. that the little girl looked beside her and she thought there, there must have been a cockroach or something. <laughs> and when she discovered yep. that there was nothing there yep. and that look was given at to her... her right. And that's when she was about three years old and that was the first time, you know, she can remember it so clearly that that actually happened to her at such a young child. So I suppose that was was just the first of, of, you know, many, many cases. Right. And I think that's, I think there are lots of examples that kind of speak to that sort of experience that you mentioned that this was an experience she had as a young child is an interesting one because it it also speaks to how these kinds of experiences are accumulated over time. And this is why habit can be a very useful concept to use because habit speaks to the way in which the past does provide a kind of anchor. You know, it does sort of shape the way that we learn to move and learn to read things. So in the earlier example you gave of the guy who did that experiment where they presented him as a black man to work at a bar, I mean, while that sounded like it was an experience that was very shocking to him, what is lacking, and of course this is just an experiment so they can't, you know, there's limits to what they can recreate, but what lacks, what's lacking in that um, experiment is that he does he doesn't have the depth of experience or the the depth of the experience of living in that racialized body that would add this extra layer to his reading of people, right? And so this is what I think is often at play when people say things like, you're just being oversensitive, because oftentimes you need to understand that these experiences also, they cohere with other experiences in the community that other people are having, but also the experiences that you have had from a very young age. So there's sort of different, there's different levels, there's different things at play there. What is the connection between objectification in relation to racism and racialization. So I think it, it speaks to the idea that we touched on a little bit earlier. In phenomenology and particular in, uh, particularly in Merleau-Ponty's earlier work, which tends to be a more sort of existentialist reading of phenomenology, we have an account of the body whereby the body is more or less always is somewhat sort of synchronously experienced, if you like. So again, it's the idea that it's a body that moves in the world without a kind of, the idea that the body that moves through the world without experiencing itself as a problem. It's it's the idea that we, that we kind of more broadly hold on to or have that we are subjects in the world, right? We're, we're acting agents, um, if you like. We all have our own subjectivity, our own perspective on the world. Now, objectification kind of interrupts that, if you like, because uh, through the kind of process by which someone's body is constantly pointed out and put laid out in front of them, then it's, you, it's hard to sort of maintain that first-person perspective that phenomenology, quite frankly, is grounded in too. So there are thinkers like Fanon, for example, who is writing in the sort of French colonial context, where he's, he's, his very well-known book, Black Skin, White Mask, where he talks about, you know, the experience of seeing himself, right? He's on this train and there's a young white boy who kind of calls out, look, a Negro, Right? This kind of pointing action of race, uh, of racialization, where, like, look, he speaks also of the idea of, uh, sorry, the experience of being at a cinema where he feels, he feels watched. He feels like he's waiting for himself. He, you know, there's a, a black actor who's about to come onto the screen. He can kind of, 
that's in some ways that's a sort of a presentation of his body, given the way that blackness can be represented in cinema. So those moments of objectification can kind of interrupt the the subjective experience of oneself. Now, I think it is important to point out, though, that existentialism as a framework does have its problem, and a lot of people have been quite critical of phenomenology in its more existentialist mode, in the sense that, look, there's a real way in which we we all are co-constituted by each other, you know, if insofar as we're, we're never fully sort of self-determining or self-authoring subjects in the world. This is, this is true of everyone. We're kind of born into a world that's already established, that's happened long before, you know, we show up. And so there are always parts of, there are aspects of ourself that are always undone by others and always co-constituted by others. That's a very important thing to hold on to. But what racism does present is this kind of, I suppose, another level at which that's thrown into crisis for certain people and not for others. Do you think that racist viewpoints tend to run in families? No, necessarily, that that's necessarily the case. Insofar as perhaps I think racist views might, they certainly arise from a particular context or a particular milieu, if you like, whether that's a family one or a broader social one. I don't, I, yeah, I don't know that that's necessarily the case. We, we certainly learn to think a lot, uh, sort of think about the world along racial lines and that's learned somewhere, whether that's your family, your school, the media, your books, what literature you read, what movies you see. Having said that, I think there's also an, an important point to just mark here about the sense in which the way in which we kind of up we take up these sort of racist ways of being as well so earlier when I was talking about the idea of racism as a kind of habit and a way that we learn to inhabit the world or how we habituate ourselves the I think there's a really important point to make there because habit again is often thought of purely in terms of the past and purely in terms of this kind of um, this kind of sedimentation so the way in which certain you know ways of being or ways of looking at the world kind of congeal calcify sediment in your body I sort of take up Merleau-Ponty because I think he offers a different reading of habit one that is much that allows more room for a, a sense of allows more sort of an active reading of habit if you like so if we're thinking of habit as a kind of orientation more broadly and also a kind of receptivity. What I mean by that is it's not just the case that we learn these habits. We're kind of receptive to them too, you know. Um, if it's something that sounds completely ludicrous, it wouldn't it wouldn't resonate and it wouldn't you wouldn't it wouldn't take it up. At the same time, we also maintain and sustain these habits too, right? So you, I have the habit of he talks about in his book the the habit of dancing, the habit of driving. It's something learned, but you also have to keep it up. And if you don't keep it up, then you lose it. So habit's something that is very does have this active sense. Or maybe just one last example. There's one that I really like where he talks about how we're habituated to our home space, right? So there's this quote about how in the apartment, for example, it's not that I, I sort of have like a mental sort of visual image of where the apartment is and its dimensions and its layout, but I actually hold it, its space and its dimensions in my legs, in my hands or in my legs, he says. There's a real sort of sense in which you hold the space of something 
something, you hold a certain... I think that's quite indicative of itself, like this sense of holding. It was interesting to, to follow a little bit with the... Like the, with the concept of sedimentation, which we often use for habit, the Latin root of that point traces us back to this idea of sitting, which I think kind of parallels somewhat the holding, which also, if we trace back the etymology of habit, we do get to this idea of holding, right? So we kind of hold these habits in us somewhat actively. So I think thinking about habit in those broader terms also allows us to think about the question of responsibility. You know, it's not just that I learn these habits, these racist habits, whether I pick them up from school or from the media, there is a sense in which I take it up to the extent that I don't challenge them, then I'm complicit, right? So I I think... I know what you mean about habit and how it's really unconscious because what I heard that they decided to do as a little experiment, there were three steps that everybody stepped down when they went to go to the train station and they changed one of the steps and it was only mm-hmm. a couple of centimetres. Yeah. But yeah. because of because of that, because it was so yeah. ingrained in, in people's minds, mm-hmm. you know, how the level of each step, that when they changed it, people were tripping over yeah. and, you know, and you wouldn't think that, especially like you could understand it if it was going up to your own apartment. But these were steps that people were using twice a day and just add a couple of centimetres and that was enough to sort of throw people out. So it was obviously an unconscious habit that had been ingrained into their minds. Right. Yeah, that's that's a great example. It's, it's the way in which we, you know, we navigate the world through bodily habits and we do become habituated to certain ways of moving or certain spaces in ways that are not actually obvious to us until there's some disruption, so such as the steps, for example, or until, you know, there's the the regular route that you take is blocked off by something until that, there's that moment of interruption. But these, these habits, they give texture to our life. They give texture to how we kind of move in the world, how we hold our bodies. And I think that that can present a powerful way for thinking about racism on this level that's kind of, I want to say it's actually between the level of consciousness and unconscious. It's not completely unconscious because I'm trying to read it somewhat more actively, but it's not, uh, con- it's not conscious in that sense either, absolutely not. It's, it's, it sits in a sort of grey region, if you like. How much does racism impact on today's society? <laughs> we, we like to tell ourselves sort of the story of progress insofar as... Um, in combating racism and I think to some extent okay we we definitely have made some important progress but I mean I think you just need to look around to see what's going on in the news to, to to see that it, it's it's mark is so profound and so widespread it can structure you know any aspect of your life from from employment to you know who you read in 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 literature who who your friends are who your lovers are who and that's to say nothing of the more sort of obtuse expressions of racism in terms of, you know, discrimination and hate, etc. Even this past week, we've had a huge controversy in Australia about Adam Goods and whether, you know, the sort of the constant booing that he's been experiencing. And, and what's interesting about that is not just, I think there are different levels at play there. It's not just sort of the racist responses of people and their actions towards him, but the racist denial as well, that's wrapped up in that, which itself, I think, is another, it's a reinscription of this sort of of racism in a different way because to sort of engage in some very racist acts and to deny that they are racist, the whole idea of you're being oversensitive, again, that in itself 
it's another yeah, it's another example of how I suppose pervasive and how deep racism cuts in our society. Yeah, that's right. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Thanks very much for having me. And I've been speaking to Helen No about racism. <laughs> 